0: Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. The black cat, the telltale heart, the cask, the Amontillado, and of course, the raven. There's a saying, you've probably heard it, that quote, you come at the king, you best not miss. Well, today we're coming at the king, not to take a shot at the throne, however, but to pay homage that's right for our extended run of spooky season here on crime capsule we're here to pay respects to none other than edgar Allan poe the master of all things macabre but we're going to do so from a slightly different angle this time you're probably aware of the many things that haunted poe throughout his life his childhood traumas his struggles with acceptance and failure in his work his alcoholism. But are you aware of what Poe himself was said to haunt? Apart from those Baltimore taverns, of course. Here to shine a light on the little known topic of Poe's afterlives. Yes, you heard that right. The places where Poe is said to live on is Chris Simter. Curator of the Edgar Allan Poe Museum in Richmond, Virginia, and author of Haunting Poe, published by the History Press. Chris's work departs from the usual Poe fair to help us see how not just his work, but his very presence lives on in the places that he knew and frequented. And how you, too, can meet a couple of very real and very auspicious black cats. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Crime Capsule. We are so delighted to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. So, first of all, welcome all the way from beautiful Richmond, Virginia. We are recording this just a couple of days before Halloween. Have you seen any good ghosts yet? Not lately. Mostly we just hear things. Oh, oh, that's quite nice. That's, that's kind of halfway there, isn't it?
1: Well, the museum's downtown in a busy neighborhood, so I think a lot of the voices people are hearing are just people wandering down the street going to the bars. Well, th- it's good to know that the
0: tradition of the
1: town drunk lives on. You
0: know, there's some things that we have to uphold in this country, and I'm delighted you guys are carrying the torch. Uh, you have a most unusual and wonderful job. You are not only an author and a researcher and a historian, which we'll ask you about in a second, but you're also the curator of the Poe Museum. What does that involve?
1: That involves working with the world's finest collection of Edgar Allan Poe's stuff. We got everything from the socks on his feet to the hair in his head, although the hair is no longer in his head. We still got it. We even have a piece of his coffin, a big old piece of his original coffin that was like inches from his decomposing corpse for the first 26 years of his afterlife. And it's on display right now. We've got first editions, manuscripts, letters, even the garden is made of bricks from different Poe places that have been demolished over the years. It's really a Poe shrine. It's, it's 101 years old. We open as the Poe shrine now. They call it the Poe Museum. It sounds less fanatical that way, but it really is the place to go for all things Poe. So I work with the collections and the exhibits and trying to find ways to make those historic artifacts tell their stories, because that's what we're all about is storytelling. Which, of course,
0: we know that uh, he was one of the undisputed masters of the form. It is his reputation is utterly sealed uh, in throughout time as being one of the greats. Um, tell me this: I mean, do you guys have often museums will have sort of? permanent exhibits of course the things that are firmly attached and do not leave and are essential essential components of the collection but then they also have opportunities or resources to bring in traveling exhibits or temporary uh, sort of shows do you do you guys have the capacity for that
1: sometimes we have temporary shows and we do have three permanent exhibits. One of them is about his childhood, another one's about Poe's launching his literary career, and the other one's about his death. We have a whole room just about Poe's death and the mystery surrounding his final days. But some of the great temporary exhibits we've had are things like The Telltale Tale Hair, which was all about Poe's hair. I wanted to see how much of Poe's hair I could get in one place. It's the most Poe hair has all been the same place since it was still in his head. Wow! And the exhibit explored the different testing they've done of his hair to determine if that could maybe give us a clue as to the cause of Poe's death. They did, you know, stable isotope analysis of the hair, heavy metal testing of it, and even testing of his wife's hair to try to get us just that much closer to figuring out what actually killed Poe. So I won't tell you what it was. And <laughs> oh, we have to come visit the museum, don't we? Yeah, come on, get on down
0: there. <laughs> All right. Well, I would, I would love to. Richmond has been on my list for a long, long time. Tell me, how did the shrine uh, slash museum
1: get started? Well, back in 1906, it was three years before Poe's centennial, and he'd grown up in Richmond. He spent more of his life in Richmond than any other city. Got a start in journalism there and got married there. So a group of Richmond artists and writers thought we should have a Poe statue. They were building statues all over the place for Confederate generals, but no Poe statue. And the city turned it down. The editor of the newspaper said that Poe wrote some nice poetry, but his character was unworthy of being remembered. So he didn't get a statue. So then they decided, well, let's build the International Poe Library. Ooh, okay. And it would be the one-stop shop for all... Poe first editions and manuscripts and letters. So you wouldn't have to go from one university to another university to see the different first editions. You see everything in one place. And the perfect spot for it was going to be the magazine office where Poe used to work, the Southern Literary Messenger. But in 1916, the city decided that this wasn't an important enough cultural resource. So they demolished the building. So now you have a different kind of cultural resource. It celebrates the love of dancing. It's Now there's a strip club there, but fortunately the (laughs) Poe foundation aside, well, let's save the bricks from that building they got demolished, bring them down the street to an old junkyard and put them back together as a Poe shrine and garden. They actually recreated the poem to one in paradise that starts out, thou wast that all to me love for which my soul did pine, a green isle in the sea love, a fountain and a shrine. So they built the fountain, the shrine, the flowers from his poems and stories, and then eventually expanded into three more or four more buildings. And we've collected about 4,000 pieces so far. So we've got first editions, letters, manuscripts, and we've got enough that we can switch out the different manuscripts. They don't stay in the light for too long. And some of the other pieces will stay on longer, things that aren't really damaged by light, like statues and oil paintings.
0: It's incredible Chris I mean what a, what a treasure you you have uh come to Stewart here, you know, I have to say right up front that a, a reconstituted body is, you know, when you take the bricks and you break them down and then you, re, you know, reform them into a new structure, that's exactly the kind of thing that we would have expected to see in a grisly, macabre tale of the mid-19th century, isn't it? Don't you think Poe would have absolutely approved of that use of of, of the materials?
1: Yeah, In his stories, a lot of the bodies don't stay put. So this is perfect that we wouldn't just let any of these buildings rest in peace. We take the pieces down to the museum grounds and incorporate them into what's there. And one of the fan favorites of the museum is Edgar and Pluto, the Poe Museum cats. They're black cats. We found them about eleven years ago behind the Poe Shrine as kittens and took them in and. They've been living at the museum ever since, and they've memorized the tour, so they will guide you through the museum. You just follow Pluto along, and he'll take you from building to building, room to room. They've got their own Instagram page
0: and here i thought that i had the best cat in the world you know my our, our regular listeners know that uh, snickers my my halloween colored tortoiseshell is clearly uh, you know in the running for one of the best cats ever but it sounds like there is strong competition over there in richmond i i have to tip my hat well done well done well oh, they found us That's what they say. They choose us, don't they? Let me ask you. So we have a friend in common. Uh, There's an author named Kat Bab-Magira who wrote a book recently called Poe for Your Problems. Wonderful book about sort of what reading Poe can still teach us today. And she has this interesting argument that I thought dovetailed with your book, Haunting Poe. She argues that no one in sort of American literary history has been more examined, uh, sort of picked apart, reproduced, recreated, given new life as cameos and, you know, shows as diverse as The Simpsons, you know. um, There's hardly anyone as uh, sort of scrutinized as Poe, okay? Which means that there's actually... Uh, pending, you know, barring any any major discovery, some major new manuscript or a lost letter or something like that, that there's very little that is new to say. It's very hard to find something new to say about Pope because of this extraordinary amount of scholarly and popular, you know, attention he has received, and yet you have found something new to say. You have found a fresh angle in Haunting Poe to give us. And I wanted you to tell us about how this book came to be and what that fresh angle is, because it really is innovative.
1: Well, the thing is, a lot of people have written about Poe's life. And I think just in the next few years, there's going to be three major Poe biographies coming out. So... I wanted to write about his afterlife. So just as a side project, I'd collected stories I heard about Poe's ghost appearing in different places. And at the same time, I also was very interested in different aspects. We did an exhibit called Mesmerized, and it was all about Poe and mesmerism. And I got interested in how this was a forerunner of the spiritualist movement. How people in post Day had this belief that if you were in a mesmeric trance, you were free from your mortal coil. And when you're released from your earthly body, you could see spirits and communicate with spirits. And people during post Time were experimenting with that. And this was before the Fox Sisters started you know, making their knocking noises and trying to communicate with ghosts through knockings. Andrew Jackson Davis was trying to communicate just through a trance state, much like much later Edgar Casey would try to see his visions by going into a trance state. So I thought about, well, how can these build together? And also decided, well, what did Poe think about the supernatural? What were ghost stories that Poe would have known growing up? What, what traditions did they have? Because we know that, Say a vampire, for instance, post-Dracula is very different than the vampires that people believed in in the early 1800s or the 1700s or earlier. So how did ghost stories evolve?
0: You do, you do this interesting thing where you trace the through line of Poe's uh, fascination, some would say obsession with death, really from his earliest Days. I mean, his absolute youth, his childhood, all the way through to the very end of his life. And as you write, I mean, he was exposed to, he was uh, the the victim of profound trauma early on that just shaped him in irrevocable ways. So where did you see, is there one particular place that you locate the beginning of his fascination with death?
1: Well, it'd probably have to be growing up. I mean, his mother did die when he was two years old, just a month short of his third birthday. And people have speculated that maybe he didn't entirely understand that she was dead and wasn't coming back. And maybe he did have some desire to reconnect with her again. And this is always possible. And and he could have heard some of the stories of ghostly omens associated with the burning of the Richmond Theater. But... I wonder if it wasn't a lot of the stories he heard from the enslaved people in Richmond and said that he heard some of their ghost stories or their haint stories and picked up some of their traditions and incorporated them into his fiction. And it's been speculated maybe the evil eye and the telltale heart had some tradition going back to some of the Afro-Caribbean traditions. And also we know that these were traditions here because there's actually a house – in Petersburg, Virginia, that was designed with the input of an enslaved person who was using hoodoo and he thought that there should be no right angles in the house. So this house was built with no right angles in the walls. That's right. The the famous Trapezium house, I believe. Is that the right yeah. one? Yeah, that's the one. And in post story, the gold bug, you know, they they hang a bug from a string and it's supposed to lead the way to a treasure, and it seemed that's very similar to The Walking Man, which was a hoodoo practice where they'd put a beetle in a bottle and attach a string to the bottle, which everywhere the beetle goes, that's the way you turn the bottle and it leads you to buried treasures. So I thought, wow, there must be some kind of connection there. He's picking up on these different traditions. And we even see that he was looking as far away as the Quran. He seems to have read an English translation of the Quran and that influenced his book al araf
0: You were most interested in haunting Poe, not just in Poe's life and death, but in his afterlives. What was the collection process of your research like? Because sources on Poe's life and death and... Um, the various <laughs> gaps in between that we that we have, um, the sources can be all over the map as far as veracity and accuracy and people writing with agendas and so forth. So what was it like for you to sort of find all of this material and then sift through it to figure out what was even remotely credible versus what was clearly fanciful?
1: Well, the thing with a lot of the ghost stories is that I was looking at them from a storytelling tradition and not expect that they needed to be true ghost stories, just that they reflected the people telling the stories at the time, like in Baltimore, the tradition of Poe's ghost hopping from rooftop to rooftop, almost like a boogeyman or something. I thought, well, this, what does this tell us about the people telling these stories? And when it came to some of the older traditions... We had a lot of good resources here in Richmond. We had the Virginia State Library. The Poe Museum has a big collection. And I was able to go to the Association for Research and Enlightenment, which was Andrew Casey's foundation. And they had a library of Andrew Jackson Davis. So I was able to read through his papers. And Andrew Jackson Davis was a stage mesmerist in Poe's day. And I was able to read what he said about Poe f- from these original sources.
0: You know, what, w- what we today call... Parapsychology really had its roots in those traditions, didn't it? Back in the mid, early to mid nineteenth century.
1: Yeah, they were just really experiments with finding ways to contact the other side, and people are still trying it. Just now, we're trying it with different tactics. Now they're using, you know, electronic devices to find electromagnetic field disturbances, but in Pose Day. This is the technology they had was animal magnetism, which was another word for mesmerism. The fellow who developed it was called Mesmer. So he called it animal magnetism. And we, I was able to look at guidebooks of mesmerism. They They would tell you, you could mesmerize your chicken, make it lay more eggs, mesmerize your cow, make it give more milk or mesmerize people. You could heal whatever ailed them. And there was an actress at the time who actually went into a mesmeric trance when she was trying to heal her body. And she said that she started contacting things from the other side. And there's also a surgeon from Pose Day who mesmerized one of his patients rather than giving painkillers, just put him in a trance state to see if maybe that would help alleviate his pain. So when Poe is writing his stories about mesmerism, that's the environment into which he was writing.
0: You know, in an age prior to anesthesia, I'm sure folks would take anything that they could get their hands on to uh, to to avoid the uh, the pain of the surgeon's scalpel. Well, let's let's dive into this just a little bit because the the, the chapter that you have on mesmerism, it comes in the context of these kind of supranatural belief systems that are emerging in force in the middle 1800s. Uh, Many of these were in strong currency up and down the eastern seaboard, and they would be uh, sort of practiced in these salon style settings, or in some cases in sort of lecture halls as um, you know, practitioners would perform a different, uh, we would call them stunts today. But one of the things that struck me, Chris, about your your chapter on mesmerism and Poe's kind of interest in mesmerism was that they really did think, there's no easy way to say this. They really did think they were onto something, right? They really there was a sincere belief among some of the investigators and researchers and doctors and so forth that they had found some kind of key or some kind of mechanism that that accomplished some therapeutic or mystical Purpose uh, or or end, and and what I mean by that is that you know they really thought it worked. There were some quacks, we know, but there were some others who really took it very seriously. So help us to understand the tension surrounding this emerging practice. It really is fascinating.
1: Well, this was an age of innovations. Anything seemed possible. It used to take you. A week or more to get from one city to the next. Now you're just taking a train, getting there in a few hours. Or you used to have to sit and have your portrait drawn or painted. And now you could just sit for a few more minutes and somebody would just take a daguerreotype of you and burn your image onto a daguerreotype plate. And all of a sudden you had this exact replica of yourself. So if anything's possible, the people were putting more and more faith in science. But what exactly was science? I mean, a lot of people still breathed in phrenology, where you could map out the bumps on people's heads, and, oh, if they have a big bump on the side of their head, it means they're a good poet, A bump in the back means they're a very angry person. So people were really searching to understand the world. They didn't have exactly the tools that we've developed since to try to understand the world. And these are still the days if you went to a hospital, they might just look you up and down and say, you know, your problem is you got too much blood in there. We should maybe bleed you a little bit and that'll take care of it. <laughs> so mesmerism seemed like it had possibilities.
0: Can I tell you my favorite, my absolute favorite pseudoscience of the 19th century? It's It still reigns. King, king for me is a phlogiston. I love the theory of phlogiston. You remember that one? It's the one that says the, uh, it's the stuff that, in any substance or object that makes it burn. And things that have phlogiston will burn or burn more readily than things that don't. <laughs> so, you know, like paper has a lot of phlogiston in it, whereas rocks have a lot less phlogiston. And sometimes I, I walk around, I've got to confess this, you guys all have to forgive me. Uh, sometimes I walk around looking at, at objects in the world and I just sort of look at it and be like, yep that's pretty phlogistony, that one over there or you know that that one over there. No, nah, not a, not a lot of phlogiston. <laughs> so you know, call me a pseudoscientist, but I but I gotta own it.
1: Yeah, like like the four humors like, oh, you're depressed, you know, that's because you got too much black bile or you're nervous it means you too, too much blood and and people believe this because it had been around for a while and they assumed that it was science. And they're still sort of grasping at straws, trying to make sense of this big, wide world, which seemed to be getting smaller and smaller by the day. And and all of a sudden, in the midst of this, there was this news article in the American Review about somebody who had donated his body to science and allowed Mesmerist to step in and mesmerize him just before he died. And what do you know? He didn't die. His body started to decay. His tongue turned black and started swelling up. But they kept him in a mesmeric trance for seven months after he died. and would ask him questions like, oh, what do you see on the other side? And, And finally, after several months, he just... He just said, let me die, let me die, and the mesmerist <laughs> woke him from his trance, right? And he just dissolved into a pile of loathsome, of detestable putrescence right before their very eyes, or just a big pile of goo. Wonderful, And yes. all of a sudden, this story got reprinted all over the place in magazines and newspapers and medical journals as far away as in London, they are picking this story up. There's a medical pamphlet that says, well... This seems like it's a fantastic story, but everybody in America believes it, so it must be true. And then over at the New York Tribune, the editor Horace Greeley said, Well, you know, the guy who wrote this is the same guy, Edgar Poe, who tricked us into believing somebody crossed the ocean in a hot air balloon last year. You can't believe a word he says. And professional mesmerists from Scotland, from Boston, all over the place were writing to Poe and saying, you're just pretending this is a hoax, right? It really is a true story, right? (laughs) Because one doctor said that his patient had died from drinking too much. So, he mesmerized the patient and he came back to life. So, people wanted to believe it was true. And and even one of Poe's future fiancees, she, she was sort of the 19th century equivalent of cyber stalking him. And she couldn't Google him. So what she would do is she would write letters to people who knew him and say, what's he like? Is he single? Is he available? And and one of them wrote back that the strangest stories are told and what is more believed of his mesmeric experiences at the (laughs) mention of which he always smiles. And so Poe was playing along with this stuff. He even went to some leading mesmerists of the day, like George Bush, not the president, another George Bush and asked him, is my stuff accurate that I've been writing about? I know it's fiction. And he said, oh, it's absolutely true. He went to Andrew Jackson Davis and Davis said, oh yeah, this is all true. Everything you said true, even though you don't believe it, it's all true. And Davis later wrote about Poe and meeting him, said that Poe had a little ghost that followed him around.
0: As you even tell this story, I am feeling slightly mesmerized. (laughs) myself over here with the with the the mystery of it and with the potential of it and oh could it be and and you know well we weren't there but we have it on excellent authority that you know the what transpired in the in the surgical you know chambers was unprecedented by modern medical science you know and it's sort of the more you just lay it on I mean it's just like like slathering it on there. It's hard not to want to believe, isn't
1: it? Oh, yeah. People were really buying into this. And this is one of his most widely circulated stories during his lifetime. So he got a lot more readership than, say, The Telltale Heart or The Cask of Amontillado. So this was being printed all over Europe, made to the popular record of modern science. And people really wanted to believe. And they had another one of his stories, Mesmeric Revelation which was along the same topics, and it was supposed to be a transcription of the dialogue of the doctor and the patient who's been mesmerized and what he sees in the side and giving his philosophy on what is matter made out of and what spirit made out of. This was something that really did interest Poe at the time. In fact, his last book is all about the relationship between matter, energy, spirits, and everything else. So Poe himself was taking an interest in these sort of things and incorporate them into his fiction. But people in post they thought, well, Poe must be some kind of closet spiritualist. He won't admit it, but we're pretty sure he must believe it. and And it helped that Andrew Jackson Davis outlived him and was able to write about him. And also, Poe's fiance Sarah Helen Whitman was a devout spiritualist. So. She looked for the spiritual dimensions in Poe. That's what really drew her to him was his mesmerism tales.
0: So Poe has this article about Monsieur Valdemar. Uh, I mean, it, it the, really the only way to describe it is, is it went viral, right? I mean, for oh, yeah. the mid-18th century, it went absolutely globally viral. Okay. Um, one of his to break away, you know, sort of pieces by far and away. Um, and it prompts all of these responses from these experts, and we have to kind of put some scare scare quotes around those, of course. Um, but what, what would you say was the, or was there an end point to the sort of Valdemar, saga was this something that continued to hound him throughout the rest of his life with respect to this particular piece or was there a point at which he was actually able to kind of draw a line underneath it and say okay guys uh this is fiction (laughs) You, you know and and you know i'm glad we've all had some fun here um but you know let's let's get on to more serious topics like detective stories
1: Oh, yeah. I think eventually he was able to get a little bit get away from it after, say, these stories and A Tale of the Ragged Mountains. He moved beyond the mesmerism, but he still had this interest in that relationship between spirit, matter, energy, and everything else. And that's what informed his book Eureka. But in that one, he didn't say that he received his visions from some mesmeric trance or from the other side. He said that He was either from a combination of deductive reason and inductive reasoning and intuition and imagination. He said that's really what we need is intuition and imagination if we just follow those and make a series of useful guesses. He said the greatest scientists of all time were just really good guessers, so we need to still have that freedom to guess and imagine and piece together what the universe is made out of. And he thought Eureka was going to be his most important work. It wasn't. He wanted fifty thousand copies printed, but they only printed five hundred and paid him about fourteen dollars for it. Yeah.
0: How many copies do you guys have at the museum?
1: We have about five. So it was an easy one to acquire back in the day when you could still acquire Poe books easily. And in fact, we got a lot of our Poe books from a spiritualist. There was a fellow named John Wooster Robinson who or Robertson, he thought the Poe Museum was just the greatest. He'd read about Hugh ran a mental hospital, Livermore, California. And he got interest in spiritualism, and he thought that Poe must be a closet spiritualist, that he couldn't have written things like Eureka if not for his sixth sense, his ability to tap into something greater. So he set out to try to collect every single first edition of all of Poe's works, the first printings of all Poe's different stories and poems from various magazines and newspapers, as many as he could get, and then just a few years after the Poe Museum opened, he just gave the whole collection to the museum and that formed the basis of our first editions. So we've got like one of, say, 18 copies of al Raph and one about, only about 20 copies. We've got one of those of poems of 1831. So really some of the great rarities, all because this one guy thought that he really wanted to prove that Poe was in contact through the process of what he called self-mesmerism. He could contact the other side. And he tried to find evidence in Poe's stories, like Baron Icy, where the guy goes into a self-induced trance state. So he thought, oh, well, Poe wrote about this because he knew about it. Can't smack talk the spiritualists because they did help build our collection. Thanks
0: for listening. Our guest has been Chris Semter, curator of the Edgar Allan Poe Museum in Richmond, Virginia, and author of Haunting Poe, published by the History Press order a copy, visit your local independent bookstore, or visit arcadiapublishing.com. Join us next week as we continue our conversation with Chris, and he offers us a special surprise right at the very end. No spoilers. See you then. Something
1: is